This morning, I am going to go back to the book of Luke. You may recall, we were working our way through Luke back when this entire virus situation got started and we found our services suspended uh, publicly. Um, They're right there on the live streaming website if you want to go back and look at them. Um, Me showing up here with uh, just my computer sitting in front of me and and uh, the place was completely empty. That made for interesting Sundays. Uh, and still here we are. Uh, when that occurred, I thought, well, probably going to the next passage in Luke would not really be appropriate for that moment. But I think we've been at this long enough that the next passage in Luke actually is appropriate. You'll see as we get going down through it. Why I think it's probably okay for us to get back. We are in Luke chapter 9. Verses 51 through 57. Now, the book of Luke lays out for us the life of Jesus. We're going through it. Luke has taken the time to lay out for us a very clear historical account, mostly chronological, not always, but mostly chronological, somewhat sometimes thematic. And he's going to go through the life of Jesus. What's occurred now is that the Galilean ministry is over. Jesus is done. He may visit Galilee once or twice before it's all done. But um, from this point on, Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem for the very last time. Jesus is now headed to the cross. He is headed down to Jerusalem. He He is going to, it's going to take him a while to get there. But the Galilee ministry is over. He is, uh, spent a considerable amount of time going there and preaching and teaching and doing all kinds of fabulous miracles. But the result is when it's all done, all the people wanted to see were more miracles. There's really no repentance. There's no great repentance on national repentance on the people's part. So Jesus has now determined to head to Jerusalem. This is the largest section of Luke. Uh, where this particular journey that Jesus is taking on his, on his way to Jerusalem. So Luke picks up in verse 51 and says, When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Jesus needs to be determined to go to Jerusalem for a number of reasons, by the way. Um, Jesus is going to, when he gets to Jerusalem, when he finally arrives there, he is well aware of what is going to occur. He's going to be despised. He's going to be rejected. There's going to be great hostility. He's going to eventually be arrested. They're going to give a a total farce and sham of a trial, which they're going to carry out in the middle of the night with false witnesses. Uh, Trials don't occur in the middle of the night, not in people that do their legal things honestly. They're done in broad daylight so everyone can see, and judicial proceedings should be open. Uh, and, and that was the rule in Jerusalem as well. The Jews knew that. But they put Jesus on trial in the middle of the night anyway and brought in false witnesses and accused him of all kinds of things he clearly wasn't guilty of. Jesus didn't say anything. And the reason, of course, that Jesus didn't say anything was because if he had, they would have had to let him go. Jesus could have just looked and said, what are we doing here? You all know I'm innocent. He couldn't say that. He couldn't say that because if he did say that, then that trial would not have moved forward. And what was part of the plan for him to be crucified would not have occurred. Isaiah chapter 50 speaks of this particular set of events. 
Isaiah writes this, Isaiah 50 verse 5, The Lord has opened my ears and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. And if you, when you, Isaiah writes this, like Isaiah 53, you kind of wonder exactly who is Isaiah writing about. It's clear he's writing about the Messiah. That's who's speaking here. The Messiah. The Lord God has opened my ears. I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheek to those who pluck out my beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. For the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. I know that I shall not be ashamed. Jesus doesn't do anything wrong. But in order to go through this, he has to set his face like flint. He is determined to go to Jerusalem. Why? Because he's determined to go to the cross. Why is Jesus so determined to go to the cross? Well, because if Jesus doesn't go to the cross, there is no way open to us to go to heaven. The only way that Jesus can bring any sinners into heaven, the only way we can get into the kingdom of God is if the innocent Jesus dies in our place. There is no other way for us to approach a holy God. There is no other name given under, uh, under heaven whereby we can be saved. Jesus is the only way. This is the plan. There is no other plan. There's no plan B. There's, there's no backup plan. Uh, if, if you could just find yourself under the place of eternal condemnation and just suffer in there for a thousand years or 10,000 years or a million years and then eventually everyone make their way to heaven, well, why would Jesus come and die at all? We could all just go to that place and pay for our own sin. The fact is you can't pay for your own sin. Sin can only be paid for by Jesus. If we think we're good enough, if we're like, well... I'm going to stand before God and I'll, I'll explain to God what a good person I am and he's just going to have to let me into his kingdom because of how good I am. Uh, the fact is, that's the road to eternal damnation. Self-reliance will get us nowhere. The only road to eternal forgiveness is reliance on what Jesus is going to do for us. We're not going to come to God and demand that he accept our standard. We're going to come before God and he's going to demand his standard. And we aren't God. So, this is why Jesus is determined to go to Jerusalem. Jesus is determined to provide for us a way of salvation. Many passages speak of this. John 13, 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus died because he loves us. Now, the time of his ascension is coming. This could refer to the actual event. Of course, we we see that in Acts, right? He stands on the Mount of Olives and he ascends into heaven and the disciples are all standing there looking up. Jesus went up in a cloud and, and the angels appear and say, why are you looking up? This same Jesus who you saw ascend will also descend. Uh, it, it would refer to that, certainly, But it also could be an expression referring to not just that specific event, but the fact that Jesus is going to die, be buried and resurrect, and then eventually ascend. And that term is used like in 1 Timothy 3.16. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh, 
was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, taken up in glory. So you kind of get the whole, you know, the taken up into glory, of course, is the ascension. Hebrews 12, 2, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has now sat down on the right hand of God. That is the ascension. So it's the whole package here. This is what Luke is referring to. Jesus has to go to Jerusalem. He has to suffer the the trial. He has to suffer through the scourging and the mocking and the spitting and, and eventually be crucified. Jesus is determined to do that. Now, the way in which he makes his way down to Jerusalem is interesting. <clears throat> Usually, when you go to Jerusalem, and uh, not too much geography here, but if you know anything about Israel, you kind of stare at the map and you look at it. Mediterranean Ocean is to the west, and the, the Sea of Galilee is in the north, the Dead Sea is in the south, and right down through that is the Jordan River. The west of the Jordan River is to the Mediterranean. That's where Samaria is. That's where the Samaritans live. If you were going to head from Galilee down to Jerusalem, which is kind of to the west as well, the easiest way to go was to just leave out of Galilee and head down that western side of the nation. The problem was everybody over there were Samaritans. So the Jews didn't do that. The Jews didn't really like the Samaritans. They would actually go down the east side of the Jordan River, which was slightly inconvenient, and particularly when you get down there, finally by Jericho, and you now needed to cross the Jordan River so that you continue to go up to Jerusalem. Mostly the Jews never went through Samaria. The Samaritans are an interesting group of folks, as those things go. You remember the woman at the well, right? Remember that Jesus speaks to the woman at the well. And the conversation that he has with her she is the first person that he actually says, she, she says, well, when the Messiah comes, he will tell us all these things. And Jesus says to her, I am he. That's his first clear declaration that he is the Messiah. It's early in his ministry. And he says it to the Samaritan woman. Where did the Samaritans come from? Well, the Samaritans showed up, and this is important to the passage in front of us, when the northern tribes, remember the, the kingdom was divided. There were the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes. The ten northern tribes were dragged off by the Assyrians around 722 BC. What the Assyrians did is what all the great powers of the ancient world would do. They would conquer a land and they would drag most, not everybody, but most of the people off the land. And of course, you weren't the only country they conquered. They conquered some other country a couple of hundred miles away. And they would actually switch the populations. It's politically a very wise thing to do. You know, when you're defending your own property, you may very well stand on your front lawn to the death. I mean, this is your land. But if we round you all up and send you a couple of hundred miles away, that's not really your property anymore. You're living there because we put you there, but this isn't really your garden. You're just there because they put you there. And by the time your kids come along, <laughs> they don't know any different. So it's a common thing to do. Well, this is exactly what the Assyrians did. They brought a whole group of people from a completely different land and put them into the land where the ten northern tribes were. They also left some of the people of the northern tribes, of course, because agriculture and those kinds of things, you need, to, you need the land to continue to be productive and fruitful. And so you need to leave some of the people who know how this all works, where the wells are and how to make the crops grow and all that kind of stuff. But what happens is you intermarry. 
Now, if you're part of the nation of Israel, you're not supposed to intermarry. You need to maintain your national identity. The two southern tribes, they did that. They were dragged off eventually by the Babylonians. And when they came back, they still had their genealogies. They still knew. You can read Ezra and Nehemiah and see. And you might look at those genealogies and think, oh, they're so boring. I mean, my goodness, you, you break your jaw trying to read these names. Why are they in the Bible? They're there because it's important to know who the descendants of Abraham are. Jesus is going to come and it's important that Jesus be able to trace his genealogy right back through David, back through Abraham, and in fact, all the way back to Adam. And that will occur in the Bible. And those genealogies are essential. The southern tribes will know that they are genuine children of Abraham. But the northern tribes, they're a mixed group. They, they have now intermarried with all. So when Ezra and Nehemiah come back and they set out to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the wall, the Samaritans, which is, that's who they are, the Samaritans oppose them. They, they try to, they, with Ezra, they're like, oh, we'll help you rebuild the temple. I mean, after all, we all serve the same God. No, actually, we don't all serve the same God. You guys have intermarried and you guys have now, who in the world knows who it is, you're actually serving over there. What eventually would happen after Ezra and Nehemiah and they build the temple, the Samaritans will build a temple in the north on Mount Gerizim. They'll build their own temple. What happens? Well, the 400, we call them the silent years. They really aren't. I mean, they're silent in the Bible. But historically, they're actually not all that silent at all. You can read historical accounts of what occurs between those 400 years. And one of the things that occurs is that the Samaritans build this temple on Mount Gerizim, and the moment comes around, somewhere around 128 B.C., all of the world powers which march through Israel and are constantly uh, defeating it and enslaving it, and, and they actually go to war with one another long enough to leave Israel alone. And some leader rises up in the nation and says, hey, let's claim our independence, which he proceeds to do. To expand the territory, he heads up into north, where Israel used to own the territory, up into where the Samaritans are. And guess what he did to the temple that the Samaritans had made? You, you know, he destroyed it. The Samaritans are very unhappy about that. Hey, we worship the same God you do. And they're like, no, you can only worship the true God down here in Jerusalem. You can't worship him up there in Samaria. So that should help you when you get to the woman at the well and Jesus starts talking to her and she immediately says to him, so do you think we should worship God in Jerusalem or in Mount Gerizim? It's still a hot topic. I mean, they're still upset about this, that, that you guys destroyed our temple. Of course, Jesus' response to her is, you know, God is, um, you know, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But, the, but don't get all hung up on that. The time is going to come when we must worship God in spirit and in truth. It's not really going to matter where you worship God. What's going to matter is that you worship the true God and you worship him in spirit and in truth, not in some building. It's not the building that makes the church. It's the people and the spirit of God. But Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem. But he's also going through Samaria. And you would think the Samaritans would be kind of like, hey, look at this. We've actually got some Jews making their way down through here. Jesus sends some people on ahead. 
is what it says. He sent messengers ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. I want you to go in there, rent a room, buy some supplies. You know, we are going to, as it were, help out the economy of the Samaritans. We are going to do what the Jews hardly ever do. We're going to go to Samaria, and we're going to see if we can't make our way down through there, and we, we need to spend the night somewhere. You would think that the Samaritans would be okay with that. In fact, they're not. They did not receive him, verse 53, because he was traveling towards Jerusalem. You, Jesus has made it clear. Okay, why, why are you traveling through Samaria? Well, I'm on my way to Jerusalem to go worship God. I'm on my way to the temple, which, of course, is exactly where Jesus is on his way to. And we'll, we'll see that clearly. Just read the Gospels. Jesus goes to the temple and... That will take us a while to get through all of what happens there. But to the Samaritans, they're like, oh, no. Ah, no, we are. No, this particular town, this is clearly not the same town as the woman at the well. This is another Samaritan town. They're like, you aren't staying here. If you are heading to the temple down there in Jerusalem, do not expect to get any lodging here. Don't be buying any supplies. Don't just keep right on going. We are not in any way going to facilitate you and your trip heading down there to Samaria, not, not renting you a room, not, nothing. And it doesn't say, but you can imagine that this was probably a somewhat confrontational exchange. We just want to rent a room and buy some supplies. Nope. So, as you can imagine, some of the disciples got rather upset about that. In fact, verse 54 When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Uh, uh, Really? What are you guys thinking here? I mean, where did you get that idea from anyway? Oh, actually, we know exactly where they got that idea from. You need only open up your Bible to 2 Kings and look. Because in 2 Kings, here's what happens. Now, Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber, which was in Samaria, and became ill. So now we have a king up there in Samaria. He's a Samaritan. So he sent messengers and he said, go inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron whether I shall recover from this sickness. Now, this is, this is a king of the ten northern tribes. This is a king of a guy up there in where Samaria is. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to him, Is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? I mean, what are, you, what are you doing running after some false god here? Is there not a god in Israel that you can ask? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And Elijah departs. So the messengers return back to the king, and he says to them, back already? Why are you back already? You couldn't have possibly been gone long enough to to have completed this journey. And they said to him, well, a man came up to us to meet us and said to us, go return to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord. Is it because there's no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baals above the king of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed, which you have gone up, but shall surely die. And he said to them, well, what kind of man was this who came to you to meet you and spoke these words? And they said, well, there's a guy with a lot of hair and a leather girdle about his loins. And he said, oh, 
It's Elijah the Tishbite. So the king decides, all right, I'm, I'm, that's it. I'm taking care of Elijah. Now, this is the king of Samaria. And he does not want to hear the word of God. He does not want to hear from God. He doesn't want to hear what God has to say. Elijah is clearly a prophet of God, and he doesn't want to know what the prophet of God has to say. I don't care what God says. In fact, I'm going to take care of that prophet. Watch and see what I do. So the king sent to him a captain of 50 with his 50 soldiers. You 50 guys, go get Elijah and bring him here. And he went up to him, and behold, Elijah was sitting on top of the hill. And he said to him, O man of God, the king says, get down here. Elijah answered and said to the captain of 50, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you. Sound familiar? Hmm. So here we have Samaria and the king of Samaria. And here we have Elijah going, well, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. And you know what? Fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Hmm. Maybe the disciples are actually onto something. They had read Second Kings and here is Elijah. And well, what do you know? We're just trying to act in the spirit of Elijah. Who, after all, we saw the Mount of Transfiguration. And, you know, I mean, come on. They have rejected the clear word of Jesus. And you're here. And, and aren't, aren't you here to just bring hellfire and brimstone on people? I mean, come on. How dare these people not accept you? If those people won't accept us, curse be on them. Let's, let's flail them and threaten them and punish them. How, ha, ha. We have the very words of God. You know, if we're not careful, we can develop this spirit. We can develop this attitude. Now, if you just passively go through life and you never actually tell anybody you're a Christian, you just kind of quietly keep it to yourself. You never, you never go around sharing it at work. You never really let anybody know. You don't tell your neighbors. You could kind of think that everybody is like, well, you know, Live and let live. People don't really mind that I'm a Christian. You might think that right up until you actually start talking about what God is doing in your life and how much you love the Lord and how much you love your church and how much you love the Bible and how much you think the Bible is the actual word of God and and contains truth for life. Just go out and start telling people that you believe that and that God has done wonderful things in your life and you are so thrilled that you're a Christian. Just, Just share that. Just spread that around. And you will discover that there are any number of people who are actually quite unhappy about you doing that. And they, will, they, they really don't want to hear about God's forgiveness or his grace or his love or anything else. And if you continue to share it, you may discover that they get quite angry with you. Our own nation. If you've been reading the paper, you have seen instances in our own country where... This is the United States of America. And yet we have had political leaders who have determined that churches, they, they had a church in Mississippi. They decided last week for their Easter Sunday service that what they would do is a drive-in service. What that means is in their parking lot, people would drive up. They actually had a distance between the cars. The cars parked in like every other spot. Everyone was in their car with a window rolled up. They were broadcasting the service on an FM, short-range FM band. So everyone's sitting in their cars with their windows rolled up, listening on FM to the message. 
The mayor of that town was very unhappy about that and sent the police over there and they knocked on people's window and when they rolled down the window, they wrote them a ticket for $500 each for every person sitting in every car in the church's parking lot. You know, suddenly the idea of calling down fire from heaven on folks doesn't sound quite so outrageous after all, does it? How dare they act like that? This is America, right? I mean, our founding documents lay out for us some very clear things. Um, Not to go into too much of a civics lesson here, but this is not going very deep here. The First Amendment to the Constitution. The Constitution is the very document that makes us America. We are America because of our Constitution. Other countries are the country they are because of whatever Constitution it is they have. This is what defines them. Are the very first amendment ever made to our Constitution to make it very clear says this Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. They will not abridge the right of freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of people to peaceably assemble. We have the right as Americans to peaceably assemble. It's not given to us by, by some judge somewhere. It's not given to us because some mayor or some governor or even the president. It, no, this is given to us by the founding document that makes us Americans. We have the right to practice our religion and the government will make no laws prohibiting our free exercise of our religion. If people have a problem with that, they have a problem with the Constitution. Paul had no problem evoking his right as a Roman citizen when he needed to in the New Testament. So when Paul was in Philippi, a Roman colony, by the way, remember this. In Rome, Rome conquered lots of countries. The people conquered in those countries did not automatically become Roman citizens. The only people who became Roman citizens were people who could afford it and people who were born into it. They would take like one city and they would make that a Roman colony. That was Philippi. Philippi was this one city in this large nation. It was the city in which people in it were Romans. Everybody else, you didn't have the rights of a Roman Roman citizen. And Roman citizenship had clear rights. Roman laws fully applied to Roman citizens. So, Paul is out there, and he's preaching in Philippi. You can read the accounts in Acts 16. And, and he casts this demon out of a, out a demon-possessed slave girl. And they arrest him, and they beat him, and they throw him in stocks. And they put him, he and Silas, and they throw him into the lowest dungeon. Remember, they're down there singing, and there's an earthquake, and the Philippian jailer gets baptized, and that, that whole account. But what happens at the end there is that they send somebody... Acts 16.35, when the day came, the chief magistrate sent their policemen saying, okay, you can release those guys. And so the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the chief magistrate is sent to release you. Now, therefore, come out and, and, and go in peace. I, you know, it's, it's, it's daybreak. You can just get up. Here's what Paul says. Now, I want you to listen to this. This is what Paul says. They have beaten us in public without trial. Men who are Romans and have thrown us into prison. And now they're sending us away secretly? Oh, no. Let them come themselves and bring us out. And the policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates. And you know what? They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. 
And they came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. Here's what Paul did. He went out of the prison and he didn't leave the city. He went to the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brother and they encouraged them and then they departed. In Acts 22, remember Paul, when he finally makes it to Jerusalem and he's arrested and and he's in the temple, and the, the Roman soldiers have to come down, and, and they have to rescue him from the crowd. And he speaks to the crowd, and they're throwing dirt in the air and screaming and hollering. The commander decides that we need to <clears throat> examine Paul and find out exactly what in the world this uproar is about. And this is in Acts 22, verse 24. The commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging, so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. That's a good way to get the truth, Right? So when they had stretched him out with thongs, and, you know, they've, they've got him pulled out, probably have a you know, bar at his, at his waist, and they've, they've got him pulled out here, and you know, they're ready to go at him. Paul says to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who was a Roman and uncondemned? See, Paul had no problem appealing to his Roman citizenship, appealing to the Roman authorities, and looking at them. And, and when the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and said, uh, what are you about to do? This man is a Roman. You want to be careful here. The laws matter. So we, as the people of God, as U.S. citizens, as people who believe the Constitution, we are here and we have the right. The fact is, we could next week. We could just say we're all going to get together. We have freedom of religion. And the Constitution gives us the right to do that. Now, do I suggest we do that? Uh, No, I'm not suggesting that we do that. But the reason we're not doing that is not because of some government authority. It's not because of what some judge said or, or, or what the governor said or, frankly, what the president would say. It's because we have medical experts who have said to us, if you get together with too many people in a room and you get too close to one another, there is a deadly virus out there, and that would be a very unwise thing to do. You should not do that. We highly recommend that you practice social distancing and make sure because there are a certain segment of the population that if they are exposed to this virus may very well die from it. You know what? That's great advice. That is good advice. And because we are getting that great and good advice from our medical professionals, we are going to heed that advice. That's why. It's exactly why. It's not because some government authority, they have no right to tell us to not get together. They only have the robe they have and the court that they have and the seat of judgment that they sit on because they are constitutional authorities. Well, just read the Constitution. It says right there. (laughs) You can't make any laws regarding limiting the exercise of religion. That's who we are. That defines who we are. Now, you might get upset about it. You might go... How dare these people start handing out $500 tickets to people who are just sitting in the parking lot? And the reason, and, and by the way, the, the Justice Department intervened in that, in that particular case, and that, that didn't go through. And the reason it didn't go through was because the same town allowed people to go to Walmart, to get out of their cars at Walmart, and go into the Walmart. It's like, wait a minute. If you can have 50 people in Walmart at the same time, and you're not finding them, you, you, you can't single out churches. You can't tell the church that they can't have people. If you're going to let Walmart have people, you have to let the church have people. You, you can't single out churches. It's just wrong. It's, it's unconstitutional. And the Justice Department intervened in that particular case, as well they should have. 
The question is, how do we deal with, and, and that's just one instance. There's been a number of them. There's, there's been a whole pile of them out there. There are people in authority, governing authorities, who really want to come after churches. They wanted to come after them for a long time. And they suddenly see this as their opportunity to do that. So what should be our response? Do we, like James and John, say, may God curse them and bring down fire on them? Is that, is that the attitude we should have? Uh, yeah, not so much. <clears throat> Look at what Jesus says. I mean, here they are, the Samaritans refuse Jesus and his disciples. And they look at him and say, Lord, should we call down fire on them? Jesus turns and rebukes them and says, you don't know what kind of spirit you're of. The Son of Man did not come to destroy man's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. Paul exercised his his right as a Roman citizen. But he, he still got arrested. He still spent the night in jail. He exercised his rights as a Roman citizen, but he didn't call down fire on anybody. He didn't get all mad and angry and start some rebellion and gather together a group of people. To, to, he, he did exercise his right as a Roman citizen, but he did it calmly. Jesus here is looking at his disciples like, guys, this is a new day. This is a, this is a new moment. Let's just look at some of the, of the words and teachings of Jesus. He didn't come here to threaten people. He didn't come here to demand that they submit to him. He could have, by the way. Jesus was the Lord of heaven and earth. He could have come and insisted that people bow down to him. That's not what he did. Luke 19.10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why Jesus is here. Jesus has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. John three seventeen. God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. John 10, 10. The thieves, they come to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Jesus did not come to destroy the world. The teachings of Jesus, which we've seen here in Luke, as well as in Matthew, but in Luke 6, I say to you here, love your enemies. Don't call on fire on them. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer them the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, don't withhold your shirt from him either. Give to those who ask of you, and whoever takes what is yours, don't be demanding it back. Just as you want people to treat you, treat them in the same way. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus didn't draw a bright line. He clearly did. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes into the Father but by me. And he knew that when he did that, that that would in fact cause conflict. That there would be people who would stand on one side and the other, and, and that that would divide homes and nations and the world. But... Even there, we are to love one another. We are not called to hate our enemies and to call down fire on them. If we find ourselves in a place where government authorities have come after us and they seek to persecute us, um, we certainly can seek to exercise our rights as U.S. citizens. But even that we do calmly and compassionately and we do it with as much gentleness and meekness and kindness as we can muster. James 1, 
This you know, my brethren. Let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Getting all mad and upset and saying things, getting on social media and two in the morning because you're so worked up. and Don't do that. Don't, don't do that. Don't get at that keyboard when you are just so mad you could spit nails and start typing stuff. And pu- Don't do that. Take a deep breath. Calm. Um, right reasons. Calm things. If you must post on social media. Don't become overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. Paul tells Timothy, the Lord's bondservants must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, maybe God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. If we got all angry and upset and mad and, and start shouting and saying angry words, um, that is not going to further our testimony before God. We can assert our rights. We can, we can declare that we are who we are as U.S. citizens and we have the right to freedom of speech and freedom of religion and freedom of assembly. But we want to be kind about it and we want to be wise about it. And when it's unwise, we certainly don't want to be a group of people who, when the virus spreads all over town, they look at us and go, well, that's because you guys didn't do whatever we recommended. We don't want to be that group of people. So we're not. We're not getting together. We are practicing social distancing. We are, we are not shaking hands. We are washing our hands. And, and we are doing what is wise to do. So we can be a good testimony to the world and we can declare to them. When this starts to be done and to unwind, which it, it eventually will, it may not happen at the exact speed we'd like. It may not happen in the way we would like. And we may be very tempted to get quite upset about that and to be quite angry and, and to maybe get online or, or to get out there and start saying things in anger. Be careful. Don't, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. You, you can state. It's, it's, you can read the Constitution. It's very clear. It's right there. You can talk about the First Amendment. But do it calmly and do it wisely and do it in a way that is persuasive. That's just, that's just angry. Uh, if we get out there and just start acting with anger, we are, we are not going to further the cause of Christ. Calling down fire on your enemies. Jesus looking at his disciples like, guys, you know, this really, this is not where we're at. This is not the new covenant. Paul will write this towards the end of the book of Romans. Now, the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's us. That's who we should be. We should be people who have joy and hope and believing being filled with the hope of God and the power of the Holy Ghost helping us do that. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that you are in control. Uh, even, even the government, much as they might think, they're not in control. You are in control. You are the one who rules and reigns, and you are the one who ultimately determines just how deadly this virus is going to be or not going to be. And so we commend and commit our lives to you. Lord, may we be good citizens. May we be good examples. May we serve you. And be filled with hope and joy 
and peace. Use our lives and our testimony to show the world that we serve a great God who's going to take care of us, who's going to watch over us. And may we exercise great faith. Thank you, Lord, for loving us and sending your son to die for us. We pray in his precious name. Amen.